Hi there, it's Melvin. Just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Thryzer for supporting this month's podcast sessions. Thryzer is a payment platform that you have to check out if you are a private pay therapist and accepting out-of-network benefits. It basically helps clients save on therapy up front. Thryzer can help verify a client's out-of-network benefit ahead of the first session so that they get transparency up front on what their out-of-pocket costs will be. I'll tell you more about Thryzer here in the middle of our session, but if you go to sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, uh, you actually end, then enter the code STC upon sign up, you get your first $2,500 in fees waived. Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer and be sure to enter the promo code STC. So we'll jump right into today's podcast session. Hello, hello. Welcome to session 134 of Selling the Couch. So this episode, I don't know what happened, but Technology was not kind to me with this episode. So the guest and I, who is Nicole Stolar-Peterson, and we're talking all about prepping for court and some of the challenges that come with court, but we actually recorded about 10 minutes into the interview and... For some reason, Skype just froze and we couldn't figure out what was going on. And we ended up having to record on another piece of software. And then as we got toward the tail end, it froze again. So we tweaked and edited and I'm hoping this, this will be okay. But sometimes technology doesn't work and you just kind of roll with it, right? So as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, today's conversation, I wanted to have it because I know that for many of us, the thought of a court and subpoena and all of these things can be so anxiety provoking. And I don't know how many emails I've received, how many just conversations I've, I've seen. And I wanted to just create this episode just to provide you guys a resource to answer some of the common questions that may come up when it, with regard to subpoenas and things like that. As I mentioned, my guest is Nicole Stolar-Peterson, and Nicole actually used to work for DHS or Child Protective Services, whatever uh, it's called in the state that you reside in, and she did that for 12 years, and she actually has this pretty crazy story of having to go testify and just being just overwhelmed and lots of anxiety, and that motivated her to learn as much about prepping for court. And she actually created a resource for our field called Therapist Court Prep. And you guys can check it out at therapistcourtprep.com. And today we're just talking about some of the really practical things that she's learned along the way. For example, what are some of the most common situations as a private practitioner that we might have to, to appear in court? How do you figure out fees for court? What are some of the, the kind of the, the protections or the things that you can, we can put in to our intake paperwork to be able to be clear what our court fees are, what conditions of appearing in court are and all of those things. And then we just wrap up with, even throughout this whole session, is just a lot of uh, tips on um, things that you can do as you prep for court. So we'll get right to it. Here is my conversation with Nicole Stolar-Peterson from TherapistCourtPrep.com. Hey, Nicole, welcome to Selling the Couch. Thank you, Melvin. I'm really happy to be here. This is version two of this interview because apparently <laughs> technology does not work. 
but I'm hoping that it works this time. And I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful that, you know, we get to have a conversation on a topic that I think many of us are trying to figure out and sorting through, which is how do we prep for court and the inevitable kind of subpoenas and things like that, that can come with working with clients. Sure. I wanted to just kind of start at the beginning, which is, you know, for many of us, I think the word subpoena, court, lawyers, all of those things bring us a lot of fear, especially for me. So, but in many ways, you know, we were talking about this right before we started recording, which is this is in a way things inevitable in our field, right? Just the nature of working in the field. That happened. (laughs) Right. How did you get into this work? Definitely by accident. I started off as a child protective services worker and the expectation is we go to court quite often and testify. But my first time that I was summoned to court, if you will, I was told just read your notes, tell the truth. And that was my preparation. Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine, my first time in court didn't go well. I bombed. I, of course, happened to go up that day against one of the best attorneys in, in the area, in probably two counties. And I refer to him as the pit bull. And he just took me apart and I had no idea what I was doing. I wasn't prepared. I had this huge case file with me. I was flipping back and forth and looking for a magical piece of paper to save me, which of course wasn't in there just because I wasn't prepared correctly. And so it was horrible and it felt horrible. And I left there with this dark cloud over my head and and it followed me all the way back to the office. And I remember just feeling like a complete failure. But what shifted for me, of course, was that I didn't want to ever feel that way again. And I didn't really know how to fix that. So I really, I had to take some time to kind of process that. And what I did was I just decided to go back and kind of immerse myself. So I asked the same attorneys that I was there with the day before, if they wouldn't mind if I sat in, if I asked questions. And that's what I did for an entire day. And luckily my boss was cool with it. And I just learned about court and the environment and handshakes and all the weird stuff that happens before we ever walk into the courtroom, how they talk to each other, how they sit, how they, what they think of social workers, what they think of therapists. I mean, it, it all plays into what happens once we're in that environment. And so it's just kind of like learning their playing field because it's a different playing field than our offices and on our couches, you know, as we're talking to our clients, it doesn't feel safe. I mean, there's all those different pieces about it. And so it's just a different playing field. So I had to learn the rules. And then once I had the rules, then it was like, okay, how am I going to make this work? And it was scary. It was absolutely scary. And, and it took practice like anything else. You know, it took practice and then it got better. And then I thought, okay, this doesn't suck anymore. <laughs> this is okay. And then lots of practice. But it was that first time bombing that forced the shift. Um, otherwise, I don't really know how it would have turned out. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine. Like, I think for me, if I were in that same scenario, I think I would. Honestly, I would probably just shut down, right? I guess what motivated you to say, you know what, I'm going to get back and do this again. I'm going to try to learn instead of just saying, oh my gosh, I hope that I never have to deal with something like this again, you know? Right. Because I think the reality for me was that, oh my gosh, I hope I never have to. I knew I was going to have to. I think even as as therapists deep down, we know at some point there's going to be another subpoena. At some point someone else is going to try to utilize what happened in that room somehow in a courtroom and knowing ahead of time that that's something that's going to happen. But in that particular time frame, I worked for CPS for almost 12 years. I really don't know how many times I've testified, but I knew that it was going to happen again. But I also knew that the kids that I was testifying on behalf of mattered more than my nerves. And so 
for a child who may or may not be adopted, a child who may or may not return to an unsafe home, you know, siblings who, you know, there's an argument to split the siblings and I'm arguing against it. You know, all of those different pieces were very important and more important than my own fear. And Mm -hmm. so that really helped kind of propel me to go back and be willing to learn how to do a better job. And so I kind of took that with me. And now as a therapist, when we talk about showing up in court and doing a good job, you know, our job is not there as an advocate, but our job is there to provide facts and observations. But again, we're not doing anybody any favors if we don't show up prepared. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's such value in the work we do as therapists to not walk into that room and to feel strong and to feel ready. We're doing ourselves a disservice to our own brand and our own business, but also to our clients, because I think the expectation is that, you know, we can function well in any environment, right? Because, you know, we're therapists, (laughs) (laughs) but court is scary and the rules are different. And, you know, I hear all the time, well, I'll just call my malpractice insurance and then they get the runaround or I'll call the association, but they're not going to prep. They're not going to say, this is how you get your notes ready. This is, you know, what you do and how you get prepared They're You know, they give you the basics. You may or may not get an attorney assigned. They may or may not remember your case. They usually don't. And it's just kind of a hot mess, but it's that last minute. Oh, I got a subpoena. Now I'm going to make these phone calls versus being prepared ahead of time, knowing sooner or later, somebody is going to want to utilize what happened in that room to help them in some capacity, or they believe it will help them in some capacity in a courtroom. So we already know that's most likely going to occur at some point. We can set some things up to protect our work and ourselves before we kind of take that step. Yeah. And I like what you're saying, because I think one thing I was thinking of was you said it like so well, which is if we focus on those we serve, right? Mm -hmm. Like it becomes, it's a different sort of, I guess, way of looking at it, right? As opposed to focusing on our own anxiety and our own worry and all of those different things. You said a couple of like phrases early on that I just wanted to make sure that, you know, we, you said like, there's all these like handshakes and all this other stuff. What's a, I'm assuming it's not like a little handshake. (laughs) Sometimes it's a fist bump, you know, it kind of depends. So you'll get there early and they're all talking to each other about their cases for the day. They're all making agreements. Sometimes they're settling things. They're kind of going back and forth. They're making different decisions. And so if you listen in, you can kind of get an idea of what they're trying to accomplish. Mm. Oh, come on. You know, you're not going to put him up on saying, yeah, you know, if you don't, you know, you know, and they kind of do this posturing thing and mm. you watch and you can also tell who the trial attorneys are versus who the mediation more <laughs> types are because the trial ones, I always call them the pit bulls because they're just more spicy. They're feistier. They're definitely ready for a fight. And the others are more willing to kind of negotiate, but they all kind of identify themselves in the room. And there's things that just happen before we ever get there. Even the, you know, the judge off the record will say, are we even doing this case today? Like, do we have everybody? And who's really here? Who's not? Do we have kids that are testifying? Are we going to, you know, so there's just a lot of preparation, but some of those handshakes, you could be in the hallway thinking you're going to testify. And then they come out and they're like, we don't need you. And you have no idea what happened because Mm -hmm. they're in there wheeling and dealing. And you may or may not fit into that depending on whatever the case is. So it's kind of interesting, but again, it's a different playing field. It's a different playing field. It's just like when we have our conversations with each other and we're staffing and consulting on cases and what do you think we should try this or that? And it's just, you know, it's just a different playing field. Mm -hmm. So I have respect for what happens in that room. I get it. I don't always agree with what happens in the courtroom. At least I understand the rules now. So it makes it a lot easier to kind of know sometimes it's not going to make sense to me. Sometimes my case is not going to get heard and 
or I don't testify or I do for way too many hours. It just kind of depends. So when, and not at all to put you on the spot or anything, but like thinking back to that, that first day where you were in court and you were yeah. just observing all these interactions and all of these things, if you could even think of a couple of like big takeaways from yeah. it, well, what did you learn? Oh, my number one lesson was I didn't have a timeline. I had this big case file mm-hmm. I had read and reread and I didn't have a timeline. And it's something that I, when I prepare therapists, it's even, there's a, a sample of it in, I think my little handbook, my guidebook. And what I do is I go from the beginning of the case to the end and on the timeline, it has to be something that the court can see right? So there's not going to be anything that they are not aware of that we haven't all agreed upon. And on that timeline from the first moment I have contact with a case, so maybe that first phone call, the intake call, depending on, you know, your type of um, practice, then the next thing is, you know, the first time we saw the client, they signed consent forms, stated they understood the following. So it just creates this, this linear timeline so that when I'm asked questions, simple questions, I can easily grab the answer. Instead of flipping back and forth with 50,000 pieces of paper, you know, hoping I can find it because that creates more anxiety because it's not readily available to you. And so you're up on the stand, everybody's waiting and there's this flipping happening and logistically it's a nightmare. So just by having this one piece of paper, which sometimes for me, it's actually four pieces of paper taped together (laughs) and and color coded. Um, (laughs) The last judge that saw mine goes, wow, that's nice. Do I get one? I said, yes, your honor, I have one for you. So I handed him, he's like, this is great. Look at, she's got colors for all sorts of things, but it, it just helped me stay calm. And that's the one thing I didn't have that day. I just had this big, crazy case file. So now I always have a timeline basics. You know, if I have a client who's disclosing sexual abuse, I'll have, you know, DIS dash SA. So I know that that's the day they disclosed. And if, you know, they stopped showing up for sessions, you know, or a certain day, just something important happened. And just by having that, it seems to really help me stay calm and organized and it keeps things moving in the courtroom. So yeah. I'm not stumbling around. And what I've seen with social workers and with therapists is they show up to court with the biggest case file I've ever seen. It's not tabbed. It's not in a binder. It's just a lot of paper. And then when they're asked for something, you see the anxiety, the whole courtroom's quiet, they're waiting and they're flipping back and forth and they're looking. And if that alone doesn't just bring up your heart rate, because it does. So the timeline by far would be the number one thing I learned that day that, and from then on, I just started going in with just kind of like, I call it my cheat sheet and I would have my timeline and it would just help me stay calm. And man, if there's one thing that any of us do when we go to court, have a timeline, it'll save your life. I like, I love that. Or like that, just that visual, because for me, I was like, I don't know, the word grounding came up for me when you Mm -hmm. were talking about that timeline, because Mm -hmm. It is. It's so anxiety provoking. I feel like something like that where like I'm very visual as well, but like and more than anything, it's very grounding. Right? right. We're not forced to hold all of this information in our head at that right. moment, even if we have the folder. Right. But the reality right. is if there's a bunch of paper, we're right. really holding in our head. Right. Because those are some of those preliminary questions that we're going to get asked. So we're testifying as a recipient witness, we're a fact witness, what we observed, what we saw, what we heard, what we tasted, smelled, that sort of thing. So some, a lot of it has to do with basic dates and times. How many times did you see your client? And if you have to go searching for that, that's a waste of your energy. That's a waste of your anxiety. <laughs> so it's really nice to be able to look and say, I saw them 10 sessions. These are the dates and times that they were seen on. You know, this session was cut short, you know, for this, or this was the session, you know, that my client, you know, curled up into the fetal position and refused to leave my desk or whatever it is. And so just by having that available, 
it really truly helps your perspective in that room because you feel more in control. Hmm. And that room is not a room typically any of us think of as being in control because the judge is in control. But just by having your notes, your timeline, it really does settle you. And I don't know, it's, I don't go to court without one. Hmm. No, I could fully see how something like this is just so beneficial on multiple Mm -hmm. levels, right? I mean, everything from our own anxiety to how we are presenting, Right. right? And all of those different things. This is a really silly question, but what are like the most common situations where a private practitioner would have to testify or like work within the legal system that you've encountered? So I can tell you why it happens more often than it should, Mm. because most therapists do not have a court policy in their intake packet because they're saying, I don't do court. So then they simply don't put anything into their packet that has anything to do with court. And that is by far one of the biggest mistakes as a group that we make. Because what happens if there's no parameter set in that intake, if there's no consent to understand that this is what I do or don't do regarding court, then when that subpoena comes, you really are stuck. You're stuck with whatever fee you may or may not receive because you don't have an agreement. You don't have a contract with your client regarding your fees regarding a court letter, which you will or will not say how much that court letter is going to cost. Um, when you get a subpoena for a day and then they say, oops, it's trailed or it's continued. And then it's another day and you're moving clients around and losing business all because you don't have just a one page court policy in place that says, I don't like court. Like basically I don't do court. And so if you bring me into court, if you subpoena me, here's what it's going to cost you, right? I don't provide recommendations regarding child custody. Oh man, if that's something we got to say today, Melvin, please. If you're a therapist and you are not the appointed child custody evaluator, absolutely never, ever, ever make a recommendation regarding visitation or custody. It's enough to lose your license, but it happens a lot. Therapists will do that a lot in a court letter and it's very dangerous because it's out of scope. So again, staying within our scope and providing a court policy of what we can and what we cannot do, what we're willing to do, what we're not willing to do, and the fees associated. Because if that's in place and you have a client who's shopping for a therapist who their attorney said, go find a therapist and then we're going to get a letter from them and then it's going to help you and it's going to do all these things. If they're shopping and that's in your intake and you've covered that, they may or may not hire you as a therapist and that's okay because they're not your ideal client. You know, as, as Agnes would say, that's not your ideal client. But again, if you're looking at this policy and it clearly states what you do and don't do, then somebody who's shopping might need to move on to another therapist. And again, if somebody thinks, well, I'll just get you subpoenaed. Well, you know, my court fee for the day is $2,000 because I don't know if I'm going to be there for an hour or five hours. And then if you trail it to the next day, you're going to have to pay another $2,000. Plus I forget what my extra fee is because now I haven't had time to cancel clients. Mm -hmm. So It's not intended to be an exorbitant amount to scare them, but it is the reality of, okay, if I miss business for an entire day and I have to go and prep and drive and all this, I want you to be clear on what that's going to cost because that's something that people don't think about. And attorneys don't often tell their client, well, they might charge you. They're like, oh, we'll just subpoena the therapist. Mm -hmm. Well, your client may not have that kind of money. And so, and they think, oh, okay, well, their attorney could be posturing trying to act like they have more than they have and they draw us into it. But it all comes back to this one place. Oh, if we could just at the very beginning in intake, cover our court policy, whether we prefer to testify or not, 
and just lay those parameters out, it would alleviate random subpoenas showing up. Because on mine, it says that you need to coordinate with me in regards to me being subpoenaed. You need to coordinate regarding court dates because I might be on another matter or I might have sessions. But again, there's the understanding that we're going to coordinate together versus you just you know, dropping off a subpoena. Right. So it covers all of those bases, but I think it also helps avoid you know, subpoenas that you wouldn't normally get. That makes sense. Yeah, no. Really long answer. Sorry. No, no. (laughs) I think another question that's actually probably going to come up is, do you have any like, do you, is there ones that you can purchase? Like any templates? Do you have it available on your I do. I have a copy and paste one. And I honestly believe everybody can write their own, but I know that some people just don't want to. And I get that. So it's a whopping 37 bucks on my site, but it's a copy and paste. And you actually can select the top is it says, I think there's an unhappy face. Like if you don't want to do court and then there's a happy face. If you like, I like court, you pick which one applies to you and then you move on from there. And then, but it just kind of lays out the expectations again, for your client's parameters. And then you can either stick it inside of your own or you can make it its own standalone document. I actually have my court policy mixed into my packet. So I just added a signature line and just kind of kept going. Mine, I just recently added something else for minors because I deal a lot with minors and it's just reminders for parents mm-hmm. regarding in California, you know, what the expectation is for age and consent and, you know, asserting privilege and all that. But I mean, I think the basics that anybody would need for court policy is there. And then you can decide how you want to use it. But you you just, whatever happens, you just have to have something because most people don't have fees set up. So if they're subpoenaed to court, they really don't have a contract in place that says, this is what I get paid for court. Therefore, it's pretty difficult to go to your client and say, now you need to pay me this money. There's no contract. Yeah. I feel like the big sort of message in our conversation today is instead of like, being like an ostrich, you know, and just like, <laughs> in your head in the scene. Yeah. Uh, there's just so much wisdom in being proactive and yes. planning this out. Just not only just for our well-being and the well-being of our clients, but just, I don't know, like all sorts of like just sanity, I feel like. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, oh my gosh. Sanity is number one because, you know, when I get the phone call, it's Nicole, I have a subpoena and I'm freaking out and da da da. And my first question is, tell me about your court policy. And then there's always silence on the other end of the phone, or if I'm zooming with them, just this kind of look on their face of, oh, um, and I'll say, okay, okay. So that's where we are. All right, let's move on. So that's where we are. We don't have court policy. What do we have next? And then we cover hot spots. You know, everybody's got a hot spot on a case. Everybody knows what it is. Either they're behind on notes or they're worried their notes might not paint them or their client in the best view, or there were issues that came up or something. So every case has a hotspot. So whenever there's a subpoena, usually the first thing is, oh, I got a subpoena. But the next is, oh no. And you think of that one part of the case that you're worried about. And so I always go to that. What's the hotspot? Because there's always a hotspot. I have hotspots on my cases. So I, I, I can't stick my head in the sand and pretend like it doesn't exist. Like, oh crap. Oh, and you know, that's why I have my own attorney because I'll call her and say, I need help. Can I do this? Can I do that? You know, because my, other than being a therapist, I do expert witness testimony and I do child custody evaluations for family law court. And so I'm constantly having to check in and find out, you know, what I can or what I can't do. Yeah. That's so interesting stuff. I wanted to wrap up just by asking like two questions. One is how do you generally determine what your fees are? So they're different for child custody evaluations because they're so long. Mm -hmm. I actually charge a lesser rate because I typically work about 40 hours on one of those cases before it goes to court. Mm -hmm. But like my hourly for a court day is I charge one day fees. I don't do 
standby for court. It's very disruptive to my private practice. I charge a full fee for that day. So if I'm charging, you know, $200 an hour and I normally would work six hours or eight hours, I would times it by that. That would mean my flat fee for the day Hmm. because you don't know if you're going to be there for an hour or five hours, but it's your day is gone because you can't book clients. You know, our clients are on standby. So why should we be? So I don't do standby. I set a flat fee for the day. And that sometimes is helpful when people might want to take advantage of having their therapist come testify. They'll say, oh, well, you know, I'll just have them come testify. Well, you have to pay for a whole day because I'm going to miss out on my practice that day. And that might help curtail them from using us as one of the chess pieces, you know, versus the helper that we should be. So I do flat fee full day. I don't do half days anymore. I used to, but now it's, it's just easier to do a flat fee for the whole day. And then if the case gets continued or trailed to the next day, then they have to pay again. And then usually they're going to pay an extra fee because I hadn't planned on not seeing those clients. And the risk to us is of course, those clients who are depending on seeing us the next day and don't, they have their own stuff going on and that may or may not hurt our relationship with them. And that's pretty significant. So, you know, I absolutely charge for that as well. And court letters, I charge my regular hourly. I don't do a flat fee because sometimes my letters are four pages long. And so I don't know how long it's going to take me. So I do a by the hour for court letters. So it's just, I think we have to be reasonable. I saw somebody recently in one of our groups post, well, I'm just going to charge $4,000 a day. And I thought, what are you charging per hour? Because that sounds a little bit unethical. So it should really match up with if you're missing a full day of work and you saw somebody every hour, it should be a little bit more than that because you're expected to show up with another skill set in court that day. But I think we also need to be ethical with the expectation of what we're going to charge. Nicole, you were talking about like setting fees and how you charge your like full day's worth. I guess for me, like, did you struggle with that? Like saying, you know what, I'm going to charge $200 an hour, right? So I'm going to charge $2,000 a day, right? right? Like, I don't know, for me, I think I would struggle with that. And, and like, did you struggle with that? And then how did you sort of work through that? Sure. I struggled at the very beginning of my practice of what to charge by the hour. I think that that a lot of us do. We have a hard time charging for value and worth, but we're trying to run a business and the business of helping people has overhead. And so as we spend time away from our families and we pay for daycare and you know we do all these different things to be able to provide this amazing service for the community, we have to charge accordingly. And so I think what helped me was honestly having access to some amazing business coaches working with Mari Lee, working with Kelly Higdon, talking about value and time. And it was a process. I had to learn and get comfortable with charging my hourly fee. And and it just happened the other day when I was setting my fee, I just got retained on a lawsuit and I had to really process it before I opened my mouth and said my expert fee, you know, because I have different fees for different things, you know, that I do. But one of the things that came up was that the amount that we expect to receive if we if we work every hour of the day, you know, for six hours or eight hours, plus preparation, plus our lunchtime, plus the time away from our practice, we have to have respect for the work that we're stepping away from. And I think we actually disrespect our work when we don't charge enough for making an appearance in court, um, taking that time out of our day away from our private practice. I mean, that that's really difficult. And so when I really looked at the whole day, what I was missing, when I 
I had to have some, I call them come to Moses talks with them, some different people. And they, they said, look, this is what you're missing. You've got to pay yourself accordingly. And my attorney friends have no problem charging their fees. Mm-hmm. And so I've had some chats with them and my own attorney who the other day said, you need to be charging more for when you do these expert cases. You need to be, I was like, oh, but it's little by little, I get more comfortable. Um, charging the correct fee. But again, when we're stepping away from our practice, I really think we have to respect the practice that we're stepping away from and charge accordingly. Not some crazy $5,000 because that wouldn't match up with what we were making by the hour and for prep and lunch. I think it should match up pretty closely, be probably a little bit more than whatever we're making that day. But I think it's fair. Someone might say, oh, well, you're going to be done by 12. You don't know that. We have no idea what the court's calendar is going to be like. We might break for lunch, have to come back at 1.30, and then you're stuck there until 4 or 4.30. Mm-hmm. So you just, you never know. So when people try to say, oh, you're only going to be there for an hour, I kind of laugh and say, okay, great. My fee is still $2,000 a day, whether I'm there for one hour or five hours. So, you know, you let me know how that turns out. But it's, again, it's in my court policy. That's the fee. It's, you know, we're not going to negotiate over something like that. That's the great thing about having your court policy and your intake packet. Uh, Nicole, I am so grateful for the work uh, you're doing, for the ways that you're continuing to like serve our field. Where can folks learn about you and the work you're doing? So therapistcourtprep.com is my website. And on Therapist Court Prep, you can grab a copy and paste court policy, or you can grab my guidebook. It's called this, I think it's stress-free guidebook or handbook for counselors and therapists, because I think that's what it comes down to is we stress ourselves out. Mm -hmm. And if we would just take a few minutes to get prepared, it really does bring down our own anxiety. And then we can show up strong and, and leave court standing tall and And that's amazing. It's an amazing feeling, especially because, you know, we help our clients all the time overcome their fears. But for some reason, when it comes to court, ostrich, head and sand, but it's going to happen. I mean, sooner or later. So it's, it's a lot better to feel prepared than that panic phone call to, you know, your, whoever you have for malpractice or whatever association and panic, panic, panic. It's just like, you can just like click, you download the little stress-free handbook and you just start reading it and calming down. And I sound very much the same in the handbook as I do now. And there might be some cuss words in there. I don't know. It's very much easy speak. I try to really make it easy and stress-free because again, we offer such an important, important, valuable service to our community that when something like a subpoena shows up, we need to be able to feel comfortable with it and leave that room standing tall. And so that's what therapist court prep is really all about. And then for those who need extra help, I do consultations and really preparing for those hotspot moments of testimony, but the book is good. And I think there's still an online course hanging out there. I'm like, what else is on there? Yep. Oh, there's worksheets. Oh my gosh. For $3, I added it on because I wanted to have like an easy timeline worksheet. And, you know, if you were being questioned, you know, if you're going to be on direct versus cross and that, and I thought, Oh, that might be helpful or that might send a panic. I don't know, but I just threw it on there just in case. So I just, it's kind of a hodgepodge. (laughs) (laughs) No, it sounds like a a wealth of resources. And I'll definitely link to it here on the show notes page, which you guys can find at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session and the number one, three, four. Nicole, thank you again for doing this. Thank you, Melvin. It was fun. I appreciate the work that you're doing. I love listening and your voice is so calming. You and Lourdes have these amazing podcast voices. So I just, (laughs) it makes me feel less stressed out about the practice of what we do. So I appreciate the work that you're doing. Oh, you're so welcome. Um, Have a wonderful rest of your day. Okay. Thank you too. 
Again, hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nicole. And again, you can find more information about Nicole at therapistcourtprep.com. I was thinking a lot about just this conversation with Nicole. And I think one of the things that I took away was just the importance of being proactive in situations as business owners, especially in situations that, that bring us a lot of fear. If I'm completely honest with myself, I think one of the things that I notice in myself is situations that bring me anxiety, I tend to put it off, put it off, put it off until it gets to a breaking point, And then I tend to take action. But for me, I'm slowly learning that it's not worth the stress and the overwhelm and the arguments and all of those things, right? Like, that it's just much wiser to handle it. And especially, I think, Nicole alluded to this, and I like the way that she thinks about it, because the reality is, as private practitioners, we are going to come across the court system in one form or another, and either we can pretend like it's never going to happen to us, or we can just be proactive and try to learn as much as we can so that we are prepared if and when it does happen. Show notes to today's episode, again, can be found over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session and the number 134. And as we wrap up, as you guys know, one of the things that I'm working on is the STC directory and the learning library. The learning library, my goal is actually to have experts. One of the components is to have experts like Nicole do live kind of Q&As where we can have the opportunity to ask certain questions and continue to pick the minds of these experts so that we can learn from them. You can find more information about the learning library over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash learning library. Have a wonderful rest of your week and thank you again for taking the time to listen. Take good care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Selling the Couch podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit www.sellingthecouch.com. So if you've been listening to the STC podcast for a while, or you've been listening to podcasts and you've had this thought of Mel, I would love to launch my own podcast in order to grow my business. Just wanted to encourage you to check out our free podcasting workshop, which is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop. You can basically sign up at a day and a time that works for you. It's 90 minutes. And when I do these workshops or when I record them, I truly believe in the quality teaching, so it's going to be well worth your time. We're going to go through gear recommendations and how to launch strategically and how to think about monetizing your podcast and how to line up your podcast with your existing offers and how to do it strategically and authentically uh, and not salesy and slimy um, and all of those things. So again, the link is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop.